Paul ends his letters to the Thessalonians and this is what his thought is. This is what he wants to say to the Thessalonians. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. That's the desire of the Apostle Paul for the word of the Lord. It should be our desire as well. This very church, this small church, Lord, to increase and multiply your word, Lord, in this city, Lord, and if you will, even beyond. Bless our time today, Lord, with all of these open Bibles. Bless the the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I chose that verse, Acts chapter 24, or 1224, because I think that verse is going to encapsulate really what we're going to see God accomplishing for the rest and throughout the book of Acts, is that God is ensuring that his word is increasing and is multiplying. And as the church, as God uses his church to increase and multiply his word, the church is going to have many things come against it in its uh, objective and in its work of spreading the word of God. We're going to see, as we've already seen, We'll have political leaders who come against the church, who oppose the church, who even kill the Christians and kill the apostles. We're going to see today the Christians will meet and come across false prophets who will try to turn people away from the faith and all of these kinds of things. And what what gets mentioned and made much of probably the least is as we look at the church spreading the word of God, Simply traveling, uh, we're going we're gonna to kick off the Apostle Paul's first great missionary journey today. Just traveling in the first century uh, was a feat, was a difficulty, brought many challenges. We'll, we'll look at some of those. Um, but we have all of these challenges coming against the church. And despite all of these things, God ensures that his word increases and multiplies. So Acts chapter 12, uh, we see here one of the biggest difficulties posed to the church so far. One of the, the most confrontational people they've met so far is this King Herod. King Herod. This is King Herod Agrippa. Our King Herod in Acts chapter 12 is the grandson of King Herod the Great. That, that Herod who originally tried to snuff out the coming of the Messiah by killing all those children. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. And if you want to just flip back, maybe a page, maybe it's on the same page, look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1, where that's where we saw how Herod was already coming against the church. It said there, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. If you recall, we saw the plan for the arrest of Peter was actually to bring him out and to kill him as well. So King Herod was persecuting the church. He was attempting to kill off the apostles of Jesus Christ. And let's pick up with Herod. Drop down to verse 18 now. It says here, now, when day came, 
There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Remember, God miraculously delivered Peter from Herod's imprisonment. Verse 19, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. So we're, we're tracking Herod. Herod is now down in Caesarea. Caesarea is a, a port city um, right along the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's actually a very significant. We'll, we'll see Caesarea. We've already seen Caesarea, actually. Um, Caesarea is where Peter baptized Cornelius and all of those in his household. Um, we're going to see Caesarea many times. Uh, Paul will go in and out of Caesarea during his missionary uh, endeavors. Caesarea is where Paul will be imprisoned at the end of the book of Acts. Um, for two years, Paul will be in a, a prison there, a Roman prison. Uh, if you recall, that's where he'll go stand trial and, and give a speech to Felix. He gives his defense to Felix, that proconsul there, that governor of Judea. That'll happen in Acts chapter 24. Um, I mentioned Herod the Great, the, the grandfather of this Herod. Uh, Herod the Great constructed Caesarea. He, he built and designed Caesarea as like what we may think of like a, a vacation home. Uh, King Herod the Great decked out Caesarea. It's right on the water. Right on, I've been there. It's right on the beach. I mean, literally on the beach, you have this, this city, uh, most of which is still there. Um, as soon as you pull up to Caesarea, you see something that looks like a... Uh, I thought maybe it was like a, a, rail, a, a raised a railroad track, um, but what it actually is, it's a, a huge aqueduct system that King Herod the Great built to bring water from 10 miles away. Um, it's just a little track, a little downhill track that goes all the way to Caesarea. And uh, what was interesting, our, our guide there uh, told us, and you can see it, it's still there in the water. There's huge boxes out in the water, out in the salt water, the Mediterranean Sea, where Herod transferred that fresh water into these huge pools. So Herod's bathing in the fresh water in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. These kinds of things is how these guys spent the, the people's money. Um, the, you can still see the prison there on the water where uh, Paul was kept. The, the great arena was there. We went into the arena where our guide is telling us, certainly this is where Paul would have stood before Felix and given his defense. So... All of these things are there. Right, right on the beach, you still have the Hippodrome. You can see where, uh, you know, the entertainment, uh, where Herod the Great would have watched the races. All of, all of these things are, are still there. And so the grandson, Herod, uh, he travels down to Caesarea. Uh, he's trying to get away. He's trying to enjoy his time there in this beachfront city. But as we see here in verse 20, an issue arises an issue arises with the neighboring cities of Caesarea uh, in Tyre and Sidon. It says here in verse 20, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. So what's happening here? Um, King Herod, who's over Judea, he obviously supplied Tyre and Sidon uh, with some 
aspect of their food. They needed uh, this trade to take part from uh, the King Herod's uh, food supply. For some reason, King Herod had cut them off and they're coming to him, trying to persuade him. They're, they're, they're using this connection they have with the King Blastus, who is his chamberlain. He's, he's like a chief officer for um, King Herod. And, and the people of Tyre and Sidon are trying to make peace with King Herod so they can get some food from Judea. It seems like these disagreements seem to get worked out. Um, and King Herod is going to speak to the people. Verse 21 It says there, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So we have this this famous scene here, this well-known scene. Herod is speaking to the people. The people are trying to keep his favor. They're, They're puffing him up. They're they're praising him. Uh, unfortunately, they go too far. They're, they're, they're praising him in a, in, a, in a blasphemous way. They're using language that's reserved for God alone. Uh, even worse, Herod receives this praise. And verse 23 shows us the consequences of all of this. It says there, Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, Because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So, as we're aware, uh, an angel coming down from heaven and killing a man is is no feat at all for for an angel of the Lord. Uh, In 2 Kings chapter 19, an angel of the Lord wiped out um, 185 Assyrian soldiers one angel. So certainly no problem for an angel to come down and strike down King Herod in this way. If you think about the power of the angels, um, for one angel to be able to strike down 185,000, uh, for an angel to come down and strike down this man, you, you know why you have all these epiphanies of angels in the Bible and people are afraid. These are terrifying. These are mighty creatures of God for one angel to be able to wipe out 185. Uh, The the Assyrian soldiers were certainly um, no one to mess with. These were certainly bad dudes. These were trained uh, soldiers and fighters, probably of the worst kind. And think about the way the Bible describes 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where there it says how the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven not even by himself, but it says with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Not, I mean, the Lord Jesus could wipe out everybody he wanted easily by himself. He's bringing his mighty angels with him in flaming fire. Uh, the, the angels are, are no one in and of their own right to mess with. So this is the scene. An angel comes down, strikes King Herod for his receiving of this praise, not giving glory to God. And what's the encouraging thing in this scene? The encouraging thing is that it seems like the Lord, in fact, uh, this is the Lord heeding the prayers of his church. Just flip back with me. It's in the book of Acts. Flip back to Acts chapter 4 real quick. Here is one of 
the church's prayers, the early church's prayers recorded for us in the book of Acts, um, helpful to read. And in one sense, we see that the church didn't simply repeat the Lord's prayer um, every time they prayed, but I kind of thought as I read through this how it might parallel to the, to the example, exemplary prayer that the Lord gave. Um, that, that's kind of an interesting study. But look at this prayer here, beginning in verse 24. So the persecution had already begun. This, is, this prayer is in the midst of the apostles having just been arrested. Um, look, look, at, look at what the church, the kinds of things that the church says. Verse 24 says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And here's the prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In verse 29 is what I was keying in on as an answered prayer. They said to, they asked the Lord, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I think um, that little phrase there, look upon their threats, the church says to the Lord, concerning all of these coming against the church. This is probably the closest thing we get to what we call an imprecatory prayer. You know, the imprecatory Psalms where we have David praying against the enemies of God. Um, Here the church is praying to the Lord, take note of their threats, Lord. Take eye to our troubles. And here we see in the Lord's timing, as it always is, he does avenge his people of this enemy of the church. And King Herod is killed. Last thing I wanted to mention just concerning this scene here with Herod is I mentioned, I think it was last time how uh, as we move deeper and deeper into church history, which is the book of Acts, uh, some of these events actually start overlapping with other histories that have been written. Uh, we looked at Eusebius's church history concerning the death of James and his martyrdom. And what's interesting is I have uh, Josephus's, uh, the works of Josephus here. I'm just going to read a tidbit out of this because it's interesting that Josephus records for us this same scene. Um, Josephus is an interesting character if you're not familiar with Josephus. He was a Jew. Uh, Josephus was born, we think, right after Jesus ascended, right about that time. So he's a first century Jew. Uh, Josephus is kind of famous because uh, as the Romans came against Israel and, and as that uh, pressure increased, and the persecution uh, began against the Jewish people from the Romans, and everything came to a boil near 70 AD. Josephus is famous for kind of uh, 
becoming a traitor in essence. That's kind of how a lot of people look at him. He kind of went to the Roman side and he wrote a bunch of history concerning the Jews for the Romans, for the Greeks. So this is in essence, it's not a believing, it's not a Christian source, it's not a Christian history. It's a what I would consider a secular history, but it's interesting as he's recalling uh, first century history, he actually includes this section concerning the death of King Herod. So I thought I would just read it, notice, appreciate all the similarities. Um, so we go from inspired, infallible history to a record of, of secular history, but let me just read it for you real quick, as quick as I can. It says, now when Agrippa had reigned three years over Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar upon, uh, upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity throughout all his province. On the second day of these shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. He came into the theater early in the morning, and at which time the silver of his garment was being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, though not for his good. They cried out that he was a God. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature." Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head, and immediately he understood this bird was a messenger of ill tidings. As it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him, he fell into the deepest sorrow. And a severe pain also arose in his belly, and he became in a most violent manner he therefore looked upon his friends and he said, I whom you call a God am commanded presently to depart from this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just said to me, and I who was by you thus called immortal am being hurried away to death. It goes on, there's a little more detail. It says, I'll just read the last section here. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain, in his belly for five days, he departed from this life. Interesting, I think, correlations between um, the revelation and the history of the book of Acts and, and Josephus' account. Josephus' account is famous for having, and I can show you afterwards if you're interested, in Josephus' history there of the first century, it's some of the first earliest references to Jesus in secular history. He references Jesus uh, he references John the Baptist, all of these uh, people. Um, some of the words that you find in Josephus are, are pretty uh, high language concerning Jesus to where some people think, oh, that's, that can't be original. Um, so maybe a little textual criticism or something is needed for Josephus' writings. But I'll show you some of the language he uses of Jesus. is very, very interesting. But back to the point. 
Despite all of Herod's opposition towards the church, remember he killed James, he attempted to kill Peter. Despite all of Herod's opposition, verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I keep coming back to this verse as I think about the book of Acts, as I keep moving through the book of Acts. This phrase, this verse, I think in a sense becomes the theme in my mind for the book of Acts. Uh, No matter what difficulties are going to arise for the church, no matter what victories they have, no matter what losses they take, um, all of this in in the providence of God, no matter what happens, the most important thing is that the word of God continues to increase and multiply. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that God himself ensures, he's going to ensure that this continues to happen, that his word increases and multiplies. And as we're going to see today, and for the rest of the book of Acts, when you think about what does God use, what's the primary thing that God uses to make sure that his word goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, um, it's going to be the missionary work, the evangelistic work of the Apostle Paul. This is what we're going to see God was pleased to use this, this man, Paul, now being referred to as Saul in the book of Acts. I mentioned it last time at the beginning of Acts chapter 12. Really, at Acts chapter 12, uh, up from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 12, really Peter was given the focus. Um, really, from here on out, you're not gonna, you're not, Peter is not going to be the focus. For the rest of the book of Acts, all the way to chapter 28, the book of Acts, Luke dedicates this book to the, to the adventures, to the missionary endeavors, to the mighty acts of the Apostle Paul. That's what God's going to use to spread the word of God, to make sure his word increases and multiplies. This, God chooses to use this former Christian killer, the chief of sinners turned chief of saints, is who God is going to use to take his word out into the world. So we're turning our attention to the Apostle Paul. That's, that's what's happening here in the book of Acts. Most people, if you go flip in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map there of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. Most of these maps um, are going are gonna to probably color code for you three uh, distinct missionary uh, journeys. Most divide up his work into three missionary journeys. But I just wanted to make the point and just remind us, I know we know that it's true, but we're going to begin Paul's first missionary endeavor today. But don't forget that, or don't think in your mind that this is the first time the Apostle Paul just started to uh, evangelize or preach the gospel. This is, this is nothing new for the Apostle Paul. From the very beginning, Acts chapter 9, when Saul is converted. It tells us there, right at his conversion, that the first thing he did was go into the synagogues and proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. From the, from the gate, the Apostle Paul has been preaching Christ. It, the Bible says that he left there. It says he went out to Arabia for three years. No details given. My assumption, I think it's a safe assumption, is that the Apostle Paul continued to preach the Lord Jesus Galatians tells us he he came down to Jerusalem to meet Peter. 
um, from which from there he went to, it says, Cilicia. And for there he was there, eight, Syria and Cilicia, for eight more years. Eight more years. And then we saw uh, last time in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, where, remember, Barnabas went and sought out the apostle Paul, brought him to this new church plant um, in Antioch, where Paul has been teaching and helping in this church plant ever since. So the apostle Paul is a, is a seasoned preacher. He's a seasoned evangelist. He's a seasoned teacher of the word of God, soon to be missionary. Um, just for your mind, if you're trying to keep track, I believe we're somewhere around 47, 48 AD at this point. The apostle Paul has been saved for some 13, 14 years at this point before he sent on this first missionary journey. But let's focus now on who Luke is still referring to as Saul. The adventures of Saul are are simply going to continue. Look at verse 25. It says here, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So I, I keep having to take us back, and that's kind of the difficulty when we only preach on this stuff once every blue moon, but... It, the service that, that Barnabas and Paul are returning from, they were in Antioch, they were teaching at this church plant, this new church up in Antioch, um, and you remember in Antioch, there was the prophecy of Agabus given that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem, and so the apostles respond to that, the church in Antioch responds to that news, and they make a collection, and they send that money with Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem, so that's what's happened, they've gone down to Jerusalem, They've brought down the, um, the, the offering for that church there to help them, to take care of them, knowing that this um, famine was going was gonna to happen. They provide the relief. They, they, they gave the money. Now they're coming back. They're returning back to the church at Antioch. And the text here lets us know that there's an addition to Paul and Barnabas now. Now we have this one John Mark added to the group. Uh, John Mark, um, interestingly enough, uh, Colossians 4 tells us is Barnabas's cousin. That might play into some of events that we'll, that we'll see later on. Most believe that he's the author of the Gospel of Mark. That's interesting as well, but um, John Mark will become a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas. Unfortunately, we will we will see that he will become a problem. Uh, it will be a problem. The good news is he will also be a, a beautiful picture of, of reconciliation. Um, that reference in Colossians 4, where Paul's closing out the book of Colossians, one of the later written books, he includes Mark, and he includes mentioning Mark being used for service in the church. So they will have an issue with Mark, but Mark will be restored, and praise God that that can happen. So back to the church. They return to this church in Antioch. Verse 13, what's going on in the church of Antioch? It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. It lists them. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
Interesting that there's a lifelong friend of Herod um, in the church. So interesting. Interesting description given for the teachers there as well, right? It says that they're prophets and teachers. One good thing about this church as well is that there's a plurality of these teachers. There's a plurality of these teachers, which is always good. And what was this church doing? 13 verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Worshiping the Lord and fasting. Sounds like a good thing for a new church plant to be doing, right? It sounds like this is a new church plant. They certainly, very similar to our church, a young, relatively young, small church. Um, They needed the Lord's favor. And what do we find them doing? Very fitting things. They're worshiping the Lord. We're all familiar with worshiping the Lord. And what we may not be is, and what we've learned, we may not be as familiar as we should be with fasting. I have a helpful definition here of fasting to remind you of what it is. It's obviously the abstaining from food. But here was the helpful definition that Brother Jason gave us. It's the particular and acceptable method of humbling yourself before the Lord to properly seek him in particular needs of prayer. I think it was good for us to to fast, to learn how bad we are at fasting, some of us, myself in particular. Um, but, But this is good, especially with the needs that our church has. It's no difference. We can relate to these early first century churches, they were, they were fighting many of the same battles that we were fighting and the, the growth in grace and desire for sanctification. They were, they were fighting these, these battles as well. But the Lord's going to respond to this worship, to this fasting in a, in a very special way, in a major way, as we'll see. And I say the Lord decides to respond by grace, but it's interesting. Verse 2 said specifically, the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit said. What did the Spirit say? He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The Holy Spirit has a work for these two men The Spirit, when he refers to this work, is obviously, as we're going to see, he's going to be referring to this major missionary endeavor that he's going to send them off on and that the church is going to affirm them in and send them off on. I have to note here that the interesting language used concerning the Spirit, we have this explicit language concerning the, the, the personhood of the Spirit, The Holy Spirit says things. The Spirit said, set apart for me. We see the the personhood of the the Spirit. Contra whatever you may hear from the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe that the Spirit is a person. They believe the Spirit is simply a, a force or some kind of power that emanates from God. That's not the language that the Bible uses to speak of the Spirit. The Spirit speaks. The Spirit has a work for Paul and Barnabas. Um, God is not binatarian. I I, I totally understand. I've I've heard the question a million times, you know. If it was simply a word count, you know, in the Bible of 
who's referred to the most, granted, the Father and the Son really seem, I mean, to be mentioned explicitly more than the Spirit, but that it's not a word count when we're trying to figure out who God is. We have explicit passages like this referring to the personhood and referring to the, the, the person of the Spirit, and he's operating and desiring things for his church here. So, Verse 4 says that the church responds. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, the church laid, laid hands on them. It still accredits the Holy Spirit with being the one who's sending them out. Um, we would probably say the church sent them out. Luke says the Spirit sent them out. And where did they go? It says they went down to Seleucia. Seleucia is a, is a port city right on the Mediterranean. And from there they sailed to Cyprus, to Cyprus. The first stop is Cyprus. Cyprus is a huge island right in the middle of the Mediterranean. I wouldn't be surprised if Ethan or even Jojo knew the capital of this island. Do y'all know it? Jojo? Yes. You. Good job, Shirley. Kinsey probably didn't know that. I had to look it up. But he's right. Verse 5, what happened here? It says, when they arrived at Salamis, that's a city on the east coast of the island of Cyprus, what did they do? They arrive, it says, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. First thing I want to note about this, I'm sure you've recognized it as you've read through the book of Acts, but just note that Paul's evangelism, Paul's missionary um, game plan was, was tactical. He actually had a game plan. He, he did this all the time. He would primarily and, 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 and first of all go into the synagogues of the Jews. Why? Why, did he, why was this his primary move? Why did he, for the most part, when there was synagogues, always went there first? Well, the language that Paul uses, Romans chapter 1 language, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, there was this, this Jewish primacy given to God's chosen people. I think as you even move through the, the book of Acts and eventually through the rest of the epistles, I, I do think we see a transition of God away from Israel as they, as they continue to reject their Messiah Ultimately, God brings this cataclysmic judgment at 70 AD, destroying their temple. Jesus spoke of, spoke of this judgment upon Israel for rejecting the Messiah and how he would move to the Gentiles. But I think there's more. I think, I think primarily the, the tactical plan was to recognize that in the synagogue, you had the Word of God already present. Uh, the Word of God, the, the Old Testament Scriptures, this is what Paul argued from. This is, this is how Paul proved Jesus' Messiahship. In the Jews, they had the Word of God. Paul was able to, to have that connection with them and, and argue from the Word of God. And, and if you think you show up somewhere, you want to start a church, there's people there with the Word of God, and if you're able to convert the Jews, if you're able to convert a synagogue to Christ, 
you basically already have a church well, well ahead of the game. So I think we can take note of, you know, using wisdom in our evangelistic encounters, using discernment and wisdom in, in, in whatever missionary work we're able to be in, engaged with. Um, there is a tactical aspect and, and a plan that Paul executed on his journeys. It wasn't just random. It wasn't random. Verse 6 says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, I put another stop here, forgive me for another stop, but I, I need to make a point here because when you're reading through your Bible, especially through the book of Acts, and you read a sentence like this that says, when they went through the whole island as far as, uh, as, far as Paphos, you, you read that and you're waiting to see what the next verse says or the next uh, phrase says, but this is, this, is a, this is a statement, this is kind of like a read-over, fly-by statement that we need to learn to appreciate. If you really have the time, if, if you're able to appreciate and understand what's going on in the Word of God here, uh, Luke says they went through the whole island as far as, as, far as Paphos. If you look on a, a map, and I had to do this, I looked at a map, I see the island of Cyprus, I see Solomus on the very east coast where they landed, and then I'm finding... Uh, this city on the very west side of the island. And I'm thinking these three guys made it from here to there. And so I pull up Google, I, I pull up the map quest. And this is a 125 mile journey in one little half of a sentence, right? That's, we read the half of a sentence. What that is, is a 125 mile trek. That's as the crow flies. Who knows how long it took these guys to work their way uh, through the island of Cyprus if you just bring up the map of Cyprus, what you see right, right across the middle of it is forest. The forest of Paphos is what it's called. You have this mountain range, uh, Mount Olympus stood out on there. Mount Olympus is a mountain range that these guys would have had to make it across. But these guys, I mean, they went uh, through the whole island as far as, as, far as Paphos, and it's just a just a little phrase thrown there, but that is, that is something to appreciate. That is no small thing. These, these guys were doing a dangerous work, a dangerous work. And in the first century, um, even more dangerous than it would be now, I imagine. I'm going to read just, just so as we go through Acts, so we can appreciate these little flyby statements um, that Luke makes here concerning traveling in the first century. Uh, this is a little section out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, I didn't think about including this to me and Anthony were talking yesterday and I was talking about how crazy it would be to travel in the first century and it made me think of where Paul describes the things that he went through um, as a missionary. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I can, I can read it for you. Uh, beginning in verse 23, it says here, Paul speaking about his apostleship, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift out at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So I read that just to simply help us appreciate when the Bible says Paul went from here to there, there's way more to it than catching a flight or getting on a bus and showing up at your destination like we get to do. This was, this was a work, a work of the Spirit, as it said already. So they do this, this work. They travel from one end of this island to the other. And what does God have to greet them for all of their hard work? Look at the second half of verse 6. It says, They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they do all this work. They, they travel by sea. They make their way across forest and mountain. And they come across some opposition and adversary to the gospel. This, this Bar-Jesus says he's a magician. He's obviously uh, an occultic magician. This magician here is ironically a Jew. And more ironically, his name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. It's also interesting that this leader here in Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, he was desiring to hear the word of God, it says. Luke says he was an intelligent man. I'm not sure why he has this false prophet, uh, this false magician in his ear. But to me, I, I think it's interesting as Luke goes on here. Let's see Paul's response, or I should say Saul's response, his seeker-sensitive response to Bar-Jesus, verse 9. It says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, this is right here, this is where the transition happens in, in Acts from Saul to Paul. Now Saul's in, the, in Greek territory. Luke's going to refer to him as Paul. What does Paul do? It says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
I know me um, and Anthony have had a lot of evangelistic discussions, referencing different people on the internet, you know, of who we appreciate, who we are learning from as far as evangelism is concerned. I've watched a lot of evangelistic kind of trainings and and looked at examples, and I've never, in all of the evangelistic training courses you could find, I've never had one um, kind of encourage us to have this kind of reaction from the evangelist to the opposition. Um, This is certainly unique that Paul reacts in this way, that he's able to, to discern what's going on, and that he's given the ability to blind this man. The Spirit sent them out. The Spirit's certainly blessing. The, the Spirit is empowering this work. And this is, you know, we've talked a couple times recently um, about when you read through your Bibles, it's just natural to imagine in your mind the scenes that you're reading about. And this is one of those scenes where you you just try to imagine what, what this scene looked like. Paul being able to blind this magician. It kind of harkens back in my mind to when Moses is confronted with the magicians of Pharaoh. They have this occultic ability the Bible doesn't deny, but when God wants to confound his enemies, he confounds them, in essence, effortlessly. Paul's able to just blind this man. Let's see how Luke kind of closes this scene here in verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. I read that, I thought, wow, interesting. You read that and and the first thing you think is, wow, the miracle convinced the proconsul. But then Luke here goes on and he qualifies it. He says, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So I was kind of thinking, well, which is it? Obviously, it's both. It's both. But this, this man, Sergius Paulus, was able to hear the teaching of Christ from the Apostle Paul. He was able to hear the, the gospel of Christ. But he was blessed to actually also witness with his eyes this, this lesson He was able to learn a lesson that it's not wise to oppose the Lord. You just might miraculously be opposed and put in your place. And so this scene here with really Paul's first first missionary stop, we get a taste here of what it's going to be like for the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. It's it's not going to be easy. It's not pretty. It's not even always miraculous. But despite, but one thing it will be, it will be hard and there will be confrontation, but despite all of the, the issues that are going to confront the Apostle Paul, confront the church, the good thing is, is that the Word of God increased and multiplied. The Word of God increased and multiplied. This is one of God's great intentions for this world, that His Word increase and multiply. Why? Because... In the Word of God is is where God Himself is really thoroughly revealed. It's through the knowledge of God by by the revelation of His Word that God is glorified through His creation. And God is glorified as His Word is spread, as He is revealed. 
Um, his word must go forth for, for the sake of God's glory. So by way of application, I just thought um, we mustn't think lightly of what's even occurring here in this church at this very moment as Bibles are opened, as the word of God is going forth. God's creatures, you as well as I, we're being exposed to the word of God. We're, we're learning about our creator. We're learning about our savior. We don't, only, we don't only learn about God. We learn about ourselves. We learn lessons like our Jesus learned. We learn how our silly and ignorant high opinions of ourselves are shattered. As we see the holiness of God, his perfections, we see our shortcomings in comparison to his law. And ultimately, as God's word go forth, he's glorified in the preaching of his gospel. As his gospel is proclaimed, the triune work, Father, Son, and Spirit are put on center stage as his word goes forth. His creatures, human as well as angelic, are stirred up to worship through the preaching of his word. Lastly, one of the primary purposes of God's church, this church, is to ensure that this happens, ensure the word of God increases and multiplies. I thought of, I mean, let me read for you Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. There's obviously work to be done, and this, as a result, is to be one of the constant prayers of the church, as it was for the Apostle Paul. Last reference, last verse, 2 Thessalonians 3.1. This is... Paul ends his letters to the Thessalonians, and this is what his thought is. This is what he wants to say to the Thessalonians. He says, Finally, brothers... Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. That's the desire of the Apostle Paul for the word of the Lord. It should be our desire as well. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, we agree with the Apostle Paul. We want to have this same desire, Lord, that your word increase and multiply. Lord, we are a small church, Lord. We are a needy church. Lord, use us, Lord. Provide for us. We pray that you heard our, our prayers with the help of the fasting. Pray you receive that as worship. Lord, be with us. Lord, may your word be honored Lord, bless our preaching, our teaching, our children's moments, our evangelism, whatever, whatever you have for this church going forward. Lord, bless it. Lord, for your, for your namesake, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.